This is a crowd podcast. You're listening to Captains with me, Sam Warburton. Each week, I speak to the biggest names in sports to discuss their leadership journey and reflect on their incredible achievements. Today, my guest is British cycling icon and Olympic legend, Sir Chris Hoy. You imagine that everything is linear, that you just progress at the same rate, but it's, it's not the case. It was such a long journey to get there. I thought, this is never going to happen. I would visualize the perfect race and how it sounded, how it smelled, how it felt, you know, sitting on the start line, hearing the beeps. You have to actively choose what you want to think about, and that will displace any distracting thought or negative thought or anxious thought. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, you, you have to always understand that you don't know everything. Hi everyone, thanks for listening to Captains. It's another really good one today. Where to begin with Chris Hoy's achievements? He is the world's most successful track cyclist ever, with six Olympic goals to his name and 11 world titles. He has a velodrome named after him in Glasgow. He's won BBC Sports Personality of the Year. He has written a few children's fictional books, got his own range of bikes, Hoy bikes, and been involved in some really important work with UNICEF. Now, as we discussed, track cycling doesn't technically have official captains. There is no denying that Chris was the figurehead of the sport, respected by all those involved and a hugely influential figure. We speak in this chat about how he helped shape the careers of younger athletes, something he experienced himself as a younger rider, and we delve into the mindset required to succeed in a physically and mentally brutal sport such as track cycling, while still being able to pick up gold medal after gold medal. Enjoy the episode with Sir Chris Hoy. Chris, welcome to Captains. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, great to be here. I didn't realise, actually, quite naively, that you're a rugby fan. Yeah, I do I do follow the, the Six Nations and the World Cup. And, you know, one of, one of your teammates, George North, friends with George and Becky. And, yeah, I know the Scottish rugby team as well. Um, so, yeah, it's I've, I mean, I played rugby at school. So, yeah, I have a huge, huge respect for you guys and what you put your bodies through on a on a daily basis, not just at the matches, you know, training and, and just, yeah, massive respect for the sport. What position were you? I was standoff. Sometimes inside centre, but mainly standoff. And yeah, I played up to the age of about 15. I was always the smallest guy. And I was the kicker as well. And I, I used to just, all the restarts, I seemed to land it in the arms of the biggest guy in the other team <laughs> who would then run straight back at me. And, and you just go, well, I've, I've made this mess. I've got to try and deal with it. And so I used to get some big hits. Um, but I think, you know, I learned in a way, it, it was it was good because I had, you had to learn the right techniques you had to, to you know if you were going to not in, get injured you had to learn how to tackle you had to to be smart so yeah you had to sort of punch above your weight and and then cycling and uh yeah mainly cycling was what what took over at that point that's what i didn't know you're a rugby fan because we were at the same wedding weren't we we both went to george mm. and becky's wedding and you were obviously there and i thought oh I'm, i can't speak to chris i don't want him to be thinking <laughs> who's this who's this who's this loser trying to talk to me I, I didn't i didn't think you'd have a clue about rugby or who i was i was oh, like oh, no. i just leave him enjoy the wedding I, yeah i don't want to oh I me was, honestly yeah no i was like going oh my god like everywhere you look there was some rugby legend and it was <laughs> but you know what i love i just i love about rugby is there's just this general 
it's not just the players, the whole community. It's such a friendly sport, and everybody. Yeah. There's no, there's there are very few egos. I'm sure you could yeah, definitely. contradict that in terms of you know you'll know individuals that will disprove that point. But it's a humbling sport. For it doesn't matter who you are. You know yeah. you're, you're going to take big hits. You're gonna it's going to be there's going to be tough times. You're not going to win all the time. And yeah, it just brings communities together. So yeah, I've got a huge respect for rugby. And that that wedding, George and Becky's wedding, was yeah that was I was like a, it was a who's who oh, of like amazing. sportsmen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was mad. I was like wow, this is quite overwhelming. But <laughs> So let, let's let's dive into your career, um, and I'd love to pick your brains on you know the pressure, resilience, leadership aspects of of what you had to do. And I, I maybe I'll, I'll go back to one obvious moment for me was when you know you were probably right in the thick of it under the microscope when you were the flag bearer, uh, London twenty twelve Olympics, and. What, what was that? How much of a privilege was that? How did you find out if you're going to do it? And when you're walking around there, you seem like you're getting quite emotional, understandably. What, mm. what was that like, that that experience? Well, I found out at the Celtic Manor. So we were training in Newport as our, our final holding camp before heading uh, down to London. And it must have been, I don't know, about four or five days before the opening ceremony. So you find out very last minute. They decide, or back then anyway, I don't know what it's like now, but in, for London, they decided who was going to carry the flag by the athletes voting. So um, I got a little tap on the shoulder from Dave Brailsford and he said, I want to just have a quick word. Just find out you've been nominated to carry the flag. And, oh, and he's geez. like, what do you want to do? And I was like, what do you mean what I want to do? Of course, I've got, I'm going to have to, you know, I can't turn this down. The trouble is, it's not, it isn't part of the plan. You know, you have this, this very detailed plan of what you're going to do. Everything is, is thought about in meticulous detail. And standing on your feet for four or five hours the night before, or not the night before, but maybe two nights before you're competing, certainly wouldn't be the ideal scenario. Mm. But you've got to look at the, the you know, both sides. First of all, there's the, the massive honour of doing it and the privilege of doing it. But also, it's what you get back from it, the the emotion, the the motivation, that experience, how much of a, a boost that can give you. So at the Celtic Manor, you know, a few sort of um, interesting individuals playing golf there and, and he spotted a helicopter and found out whose it was and went and spoke to them and said, look, can we borrow your helicopter? You know, would you be able to give us a lift? Um, so I got on my own, just, you know, got my bags packed, jumped in the helicopter and got dropped off on the outskirts of the no-fly zone in London. And then a car took me straight into the village. And it was a really strange experience, just on your own, walking in, you know, having your key, looking around, trying to find the right block. And then you go, and I think this is my door and your name's in the door and you go. And then on the bed, there was this little bag, this little gift pack, which I opened up and it was from my parents. And my dad had had found my old BMX race jersey that I had when I was like seven years of old that had my name in the back of it, which I hadn't seen for, you know, 20, 30 years. And he'd done a, he'd basically gone through all my race results for the last, uh, through my whole career. And he, he'd uh, typed out this little spreadsheet of results. And then there was like the last, the very last one, London 2012, with a little gap for, you know, this, this is the final hurrah. This is, this is the end of the journey. And it was just, it was a really emotional moment. And just sitting there kind of reflecting on, you know, I can't believe that what started out with this tiny little jersey, which really was tiny, here I am about to lead out the British team at a home Olympics and carrying the flag. And and the, the, the moment itself, that you know, a lot of big things that you look forward to, they don't live up to the expectations and, and it's a bit of an anticlimax, but it couldn't have been further from the truth for the, the flag bearing. It was it was more than I could ever have imagined. It was such a build-up, realising this what it meant to the country and all the fans and as you're going in, absolutely hysterical it was it was incredible the, the sort of fever pitch heading into the into the stadium and then you know you, you get told all these guidelines before you go in right when you walk in with the flag you get to this point you raise it you lower it you look to the royal box you do this you do that yeah 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 i've got all that 
and then you go in and you completely it goes out your mind and you're like whoa <laughs> <laughs> waving the flag um but you're right i was i was very i was emotional i remember the feeling just of i remember just thinking because there's two ways of looking at the flag bearer situation it's either a burden it's either added pressure it adds you know more focus onto you because you're you know inverted commas a leader of the team or it's what an amazing experience what an amazing opportunity you, you know that's something they can never take away from you so i i went out there and i thought you know what the it's been a hard four years getting to this point to make these games and it's been worth it just for this moment. So anything that I can get on top of this, any any success, any, you know, whatever happens in the racing, it's a bonus because it was worth it just, just to carry the flag and to experience that energy as you walk, as literally, it must be like being a rock star when you, you know, you step on stage. When we walked in as a team and they announced Great Britain, this wall of sound and all these confetti, gold confetti cannons going off and David Bowie, heroes playing, you know, it was, it was... Yeah, it was. It was like being in a movie. It was incredible. I mean, you you would have been a leader already because you've you know you've been to two games, well three games. You're going into London then. I imagine you're a very senior, experienced rider. Then obviously a lot of youngsters. You probably see them year in, you know, coming through, and they see yourself, and you're that guy that they are going to be looking towards. Were you comfortable in that leadership role amongst Team GB in in the cycling team? Is that some, a, a position you wanted to adopt, or is it something that you just naturally portrayed anyway? Um, well, it's, it's funny because track cycling isn't a, it's not a team sport as such. You know, road cycling is, is a team sport, but a lot of other sports you have captains. You have to have captains, you know, or whether it's part of the sport, whether a team is, nominates someone to be the leader of the team. But we didn't have that in track cycling. It was very individual sport. Of course, you were part of a team and you supported each other, but it's anybody who became, you know, an unofficial leader. It was, it was a very organic thing that happened over time. It's only looking back now you kind of realise, oh yeah, I suppose I was to some of the riders, you know, the, the, you know, a young rider comes on the team and you would, you know, they might come to you and ask advice. It might be that you go to them and you chat to them. But it was going into London, I guess I felt that, I don't know, it's hard, it's really hard to explain how I find it flattering if, if you know, a younger rider came to me and, and asked for advice. I tried to, I just tried to be the best I could be. And I guess if you, if you lead from the front, if you, if you set an example of how to train and how to commit to each session and, and how to try and behave, you try and be the best you can. You don't always live up to your own expectations. But if you, if you set an example for yourself and then others follow, then, then you know, maybe that's how it happens. Everybody's different. Everyone operates in a different way. Not everyone likes to be approaching their session or their week or their month or their, their, their whole campaign in the same way. But you're working together. So you have to find a way to... To work in harmony but the thing I, I think the biggest lesson i learned was when i was a younger rider coming through and there was a guy called jason queely who won the gold medal in sydney he was the one who really doesn't get enough credit but was 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 really instrumental in in the british cycling explosion because it his gold medal was what happened to get you know even more funding for the sport which allowed athens to be a better funded campaign which allowed us to win even more medals in athens which then exponentially you know shot up towards beijing and then two years later at the, the Commonwealth Games, he was riding for England, I was riding for Scotland. And he basically took me under his wing and, and sort of helped, he would mentor me and coach me in the Kilo Time Trail. And I had the best guy in the world to train with day in, day out. He had, you know, it didn't help him having some guy who was slower than him, some young kid asking questions all the time. But he had the patience and, and just the, the personality to say, yeah, I'll help you. And he, he might have enjoyed us, guess, having a training partner. We'd go and train in Perth, in Australia together. We'd train, you know, with other people too, but we would train as a pair. And then it became aware that he was going to be, you know, I, I was going to be a challenge for him at the Commonwealth Games. And at that point, you could have forgiven him just for going, well, look, we're going to be rivals. You know, you're getting a bit close now. Let's, you know, <laughs> I've, I've told you enough. Um, 
But no, he didn't. He, he supported me all the way through and right up until race day. And, and I beat him by like a tenth of a second. And he was the first one to come <laughs> over and congratulate me. And it was sincere. You know, of course he wanted to win. But and I, I just remember thinking, what an amazing human being to be... Because you don't get to that level without being competitive. You don't get to that level by not caring or just, ah, oh, you know, I'm not that fussed. He wanted to win that, that gold medal. And he wanted to be Olympic champion again in Athens in 2004. But he realised, well, do you know what? I'm, if I'm not the best, then I can accept that and I can shake the hand of the person that beat me. And I just remember thinking, if I'm ever in that situation, that's the kind of person that I want to be. I want to be the, the better man that can, you know, accept when, when somebody else beats me. And it's, yeah, I guess to a certain extent, it was like that with Jason Kenny because, you know, he became a huge rival heading into London. It was a really good lesson, a great example to see how, how to behave and how to, to, to nurture and encourage the younger athletes. Did that happen to you a lot then as you got towards the latter end of your career? Because I imagine people coming in with the opportunity to be around yourself. Would younger athletes then pick your brains? And then would you, I know you said the Jason Kenny example, but would you then take on that role with other younger athletes? Um, yeah, there was there were quite a few younger athletes, um, I guess, coming into London, that sort of four-year period, who you tried to help them. And, and even doing things like they, they would help me. It was, you know, there was, there was a group of riders who, like, heading into to London, I wanted to, to practice the Kieran, but you couldn't get much Kieran racing experience at top level plus the more you do the more you give away your tactics and your your preferred style of racing to your rivals so we used to do sort of fake races behind closed doors with these younger riders and I would use slower wheels and they would put on race kit to try and level the playing field a bit and you know it was fun because they got to they, they were really instrumental in, in my final preparation for London and I, I think in a way it helped them as well because they were getting this the opportunity to race alongside and, and to, to pick my brains but yeah, I hope so. I'd like to think that, that the younger athletes were, they, they got something from, from being in that track centre. And, and yeah, you'd, you know, you'd help them in the gym, you'd help them in the track, you'd, talk, you know, you'd watch them and say, I think if you try this or change that or tweak this, give it a go. And you could see them implementing, you know, little bits of advice you give them. Did you like the spotlight? Because you were probably the most talked about, certainly one of the most talked about athletes then and around the country and obviously the Olympics on everyone's mind. Did you like the spotlight? Because when you're in that role, you feel like you're constantly being watched. Did you like that? Mm. No, I, I didn't really. And it, it, it's it's funny because it kind of grows on you in time and you never feel like it's ever going to be something you're going to have to deal with because I was in a, a minority sport. You know, track cycling wasn't a big sport. When I started, it was it was something you had to explain to people what it was and what you did. You know, I used to get into taxis and they'd sort of say, "Oh, what do you do then for a living?" And you know, I'm a, uh, I ride bikes for a living. Oh, do you? What are you are you a courier? You know, kind of thing. <laughs> Delivery. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like seriously, back in the nineties, that's that's what like, the, to, the thought of make. Oh, what do you do the Tour de France then? I said, "Well, no, I do track cycling," and nobody had heard of it. And then now you get in a taxi and you get chatting, and it's like. So is it the Kieran or the Madison or yeah. who do you think is going to win? The, you know, everyone knows that it's, it's become quite a mainstream sport and it's um, it's wonderful to have been part of that that whole explosion in, in, in interest in cycling in the UK. But but no, I didn't I didn't really relish it. I didn't chase it. I didn't. It wasn't something I wanted. But equally, to get to carry the flag and, and to realise actually this is this is a once in a lifetime thing and not even once in a lifetime. Some athletes never get the chance. Most athletes never get the chance to compete at home Olympics in front of a home crowd. So I had to, you know, with well, Steve Peters was a big, um, massive part of my career, massive part of my life, really. He's helped me in so many ways, but he helped me to get the mindset right of this is an opportunity. This is not a burden. You know, you are in the spotlight. You can't change that. There's nothing you can do to change that. But um, what you can change is your mindset and your your perception of, of what's happening around you. 
So Professor Steve Peters, for those that don't know, wrote The Chimp Paradox. I, I use a sports psychologist as well. And when, when I used one, it was in 2010, and I actually stumbled across it. I didn't, he was working with the national team and we were at like an after-match dinner and I, he was just asking me about my performance and my game and stuff. And I said, oh yeah, I'm struggling with, you know, with this part of my game. And he was like, we can work on that. And I was like, really? And then I discovered him and he was massive for me and I speak about him a lot. I've heard you speak about Steve Peters quite a bit. Was he, mm. when you look back on your career, was he one of the really important influences that you had on your performance? It seems like he's a very influential figure in your career. Massively. And it's, it's, I think what's interesting is trying to think back and wondering what would have happened if I hadn't met him, you know, if I hadn't had those interactions, even just a chance one I had back in 2004. So we were in Newport again before the Olympics. That was our pre-Olympic venue. And Steve had been part of the team for about six months, maybe maybe a year. And I still hadn't really engaged with him at all at that point because it was it was seen as a... Well, there was still a stigma attached to seeing a psychologist, which is ridiculous yeah, was, when you yeah. think about it. Um, mm, you know, I always use the analogy, if you've got a problem with your bike, you take it to a mechanic. If you've got an injury, you go to the physio. If you're ill, you go to the doctor. So why would you not go and see a psychologist who could help you with some form of the psychological part of your, your performance, which is a huge part of it. So, so Steve came to me and he said, um, he's like, oh, you know, have you got time for a quick chat? So we just sat there in reception, had a coffee. And he's just said, you know, how, how's it going? How's your season going? How are you feeling? Are you, what's your state of mind heading into Athens? And I was like, yeah, all good. Yeah, really good. You know, fit, healthy, no injuries, form is good. I'm ready to go. And he's like, well, I just, I've been thinking about one possible scenario which might play out in Athens. So I was doing the time trial, the, the kilo time trial, where it's one rider on the track at a time and you only get one shot. There's no heats or qualifying and you do it in reverse seeding order. So I was going to be last to go. I'd have to sit and watch all my rivals post their times. And, and he said, look, what I'm concerned is that what, what are you going to do if somebody breaks the world record right before you get on the track? You know, how will you cope with that? How will you deal with that distraction or, you know, psychologically? So I said, well, I just want to think about it. And he said, OK, well, if I say to you right now, don't think about a pink elephant, what's the first thing that pops into your head? So this, <laughs> obviously, this pink elephant popped in my head and I was just like, oh, God, you know. Um, right, well, what do I do then? You know, he said, well, you can't say you're not going to think about something. If you if you say you're not going to think about something, you get drawn towards it instinctively. You have to actively choose what you want to think about and that will displace any distracting thought or negative thought or anxious thought. So what we've got three weeks between now and the games, you know, I want you to now practice. Every time you feel anxious or, or negative about anything, I want you to visualise your race from your perspective in real time. And the race just, you know, it took 60 seconds or so one minute's worth of concentration Anytime you get anxious, so that on the night when, when you know, potentially something, a big performance happens, you can displace that negative thought or that distraction. And, you know, visualization was nothing new. It wasn't as if I hadn't done that before. So it didn't, it didn't feel like a really significant moment at that time. But I went back to my room, logged on to one of the cycling news sites, and I saw an article about one of my rivals going really well in training. Had that feeling of panic, rush of adrenaline, like, oh, God, he's going really well. I thought, oh, stop, wait a minute you know, shut your eyes, you're in the start gate, visualise this perfect race. And I just did that again and again and again, leading up to the games. And it was almost as though he had a crystal ball because three guys broke the world record before I got on the track in Athens. And I used that technique basically just to focus on myself. And it allows me to focus on what I'm going to do, focus on the process of what I want to do, not thinking about the outcome, not thinking about the gold medal or the feel of fear of failure if it goes wrong. Just focus on what I need to do to be the best I can be. And yeah, so who knows what would have happened if Steve hadn't, if Steve hadn't been there that afternoon at Newport on that rest day to sort of have a little chat, how, how would I have react, reacted on the night? I may have coped with it, 
or I may have reacted and changed my game plan at the last minute as the goalpost moved. I think that's the fascinating thing about you know what Steve calls your chimp, your, the emotional part of your brain. It's very unpredictable. So you can the decisions you make with emotion are very unpredictable. Sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. Whereas if you if you can be in that kind of automatic state, that that kind of computer state where you're you're following this program through, then it's very predictable, very logical, and you you know what's gonna you know what's gonna happen. I love the visualization thing you're talking about because, and I'd like to ask you like what what were you thinking in that moment, or how long did it take? So like, because I did the same thing. I think people, it's not like um, you just close your eyes and go, oh, I'm going to win, I'm going to win. You know, like I, I remember I was coached, I closed my eyes and um, my, my sports psychologist would say to me, right, say my thing was ball carrying. So I used to, I lacked a bit of confidence in that when I got to the, the pro leagues, so obviously playing against a lot of bigger people. Mm-hmm. But even though I was quite an explosive guy, I wasn't backing myself. So I'd imagine it from, he said, right, I was closed my eyes. He said, right, imagine it as if you were someone in the stand watching you and you're doing a really big, aggressive ball carry that's physically dominant, and I'd watch it from their perspective. He said, right, now watch it from the opposition perspective. Imagine him, imagine yourself running towards you, if that makes sense. Then he'd say, right, now do the referee, now do it in your own eyes. And I'd do that four times. It would take me maybe about one minute, and then I'd open my eyes and I'd feel great. That was like an example of how I did it. What, was, what, were, what things were you thinking about, and like how long did it take you to get into that mindset? Well, just before I explain, yeah, I think it's fascinating to hear what you did in rugby, because there's so many variables, so many, you know, I, I, I had no idea how you would go about breaking down the performance within a rugby match, because, you know, how do you, you can't, you can't sit and visualise a match with all the, all the different potential eventualities. Yeah, yeah. That's a, a really interesting challenge for a psychologist, and that's what I find, I think that's what Steve quite enjoys, is the challenges of going to new sports, learning about, I mean, he knew nothing about snooker. And he starts working with Ronnie O'Sullivan, you know, the greatest sneaker player of all time, jumping into cycling, getting involved in Taekwondo, all these different sports that he has no experience in. But he, it doesn't matter because he can go in there, filter out all the nonsense and get cut straight to the, the really vital part. I, I think, well, I, I guess what your psychologist was trying to get through to you was how other people perceive you and see you as this big, powerful, scary guy mm. tanking towards them, thinking, oh my God, you know, this is going to hurt. Whereas, whereas you're, yeah... Whereas, whereas yeah, you, I guess mine was more of a confidence building thing, yeah. And it was like trying to get you to see, actually, hang on, I am strong, I am powerful, I can break tackles. You know why? You know this is this is how other people see me. I should see myself the same way. But for for me, it was the visualization part was about rehearsing because it was so predictable and so controlled that event anyway that the one k time trial was because there was no one else in the track with you. Yeah, you knew it was just you in the start gate, four laps of the track on the black line, and it was about repeating the same thing and doing it to perfection. So I would visualize the perfect race and how it sounded, how it smelled, how it felt, you know, sitting on the start line, hearing the beeps, the, the 10 second beeps before the gate releases, imagining just every detail of this perfect performance. And and it took a minute. So you'd sit there and you would shut your eyes and time it and see how close you could get to that one minute point seven seconds, whatever your target time was. And you could get pretty close to within you know, a second of your, your target time in, in time with practicing it. But what is amazing about the, the mind and about the brain is that, you know, on the night itself, I was so ready for this performance. And there was, I, was, I basically was, was on this constant loop of what I was going to do. And I knew I was physically ready, but it's, you know, being physically ready and actually getting that performance out aren't always, it's not always that straightforward. But once I got, once I locked in, once I almost like, felt like I was pressing play on a video in my head, once I started that, that sequence in the start gate, feet strapped in, sitting up, deep breath, right, here we go. You get down the bars and the countdown starts. It felt like I was in 
in a video. I felt like I was in this visualization and the race itself. And I, when I remember crossing the line and thinking, is this actually happening? And, and I didn't visualize beyond the finishing line. You never visualize, or I never visualized to see what the end result was. It was only about the performance, only about the process. So when I did cross the finishing line, you hear this massive roar. And then you're suddenly, it's like you kind of pop out and just kind of go, oh my, how, how did this happen? Where am That's I? The bit is, you didn't is this real? Yeah. yeah. And what do I yeah. do? Because I haven't, I haven't rehearsed. Normally you're punching the air straight away, but I didn't really know. I was like, it's a, it's a really <laughs> weird sort of limp arm goes up and I was sort of riding around looking really sort of just dazed and confused. And it took about half a lap before I saw my family and my, my friends and they had the, the flag and the banner out and stuff. And that's, that was the moment I suddenly it snapped and I sort of realised yeah, you're Olympic champion. This is this is actually happening. Did it feel like you'd already experienced it before? Because you'd mentally rehearsed it so much once you were in it. Is that what you mean? You were just sort of in that autopilot, just doing? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's it, the more you can cement that that neural pathway, the less of a surprise. And, and you know, I used to do it all the time in training. Um, it helped you engage more with the moment and try and give more and, and you know rehearse this. This is actually pretend this is the Olympic final. But when the Olympic final came, it was like I've been here thousands of times before and I've, I'm ready for this and it's not like a oh my god this is the Olympic final it's like yeah you know I'm, I'm prepared and, I'm, and so much of it is that mental rehearsal it's not being surprised by what you're about to do it's it's being being ready and being familiar and thinking yeah I've been here before it's about taking away the variables and, and just trying not to have or feeling as if you've yeah a it's familiar and b you know, there's no stone left unturned. You've done everything you can to be prepared. You can only do so much and you can't guarantee you're going to win. You don't know what your arrivals are going to bring, but you know that you're ready and that you're going to bring, you know, do the best that you can. Is that where you got your confidence from, your preparation? Yeah, definitely. It's, and I never went in thinking I was going to win. I never went in believing that I was invincible. And it was, um, you know, Steve used to call it the Father Christmas syndrome. You know, if you if you believe in something as sort of ridiculous is that you're invincible and no one can beat you and that's your whole belief system then all it takes is one defeat and it's gone so you have to almost it's the opposite for me I used to believe I'm entirely beatable and therefore I have to be at my best every single time I get on the track otherwise I'll be vulnerable and I could lose this race so yeah it was it was being aware of focusing on yourself trying to get the best out of yourself but not ever thinking about the end result and believing that, that you know this was a guarantee. You're listening to Captains with me, Sam Warburton, and my guest, Sir Chris Hoy. So Athens that we've just been talking about was your first of six Olympic golds. What was your, what I mean in the aftermath, not like maybe when you're going around the track, but once you've reflected on it, you, you come down from the hype, and you've got a gold medal, you've got that first Olympic gold medal. What was your first thought? Was it, great, I've done it, or was it, I need more? What, what sort of mindset were you in after that? It took me a long time to accept it, actually. I, I just, I never really saw myself as an Olympic champion. Certainly growing up, I didn't. And and I guess you imagine that everything is linear, that you just progress at the same rate. And from a young age, you know, you can pick out who the stars are going to be and they just keep, you know, improving at the same rate. But it's it's not the case. And, and so for me, although I had been world champion in 2002, it was such a long journey to get there. I was, I was 26 when I became world champion. I was 28 in Athens when I won my first Olympic gold medal. And it had taken such a long, slow grind and my pr improvement had been so laborious, really. It had just taken, I thought, this is never going to happen. But even then, after Athens, I remember feeling just like, I, I used to sit and stare at the medal. You know, I went back to my flat and it, nothing, you know, you have a couple of exciting weeks of events and you go to Buckingham Palace and you meet the Queen and, you know, you do all these cool things. 
and you go on the Jonathan Ross show or whatever, you know, with, with the whole team and it's, and then it's back to normal. You're paying your gas bill and you're, you know, you're getting up in the morning, going to training and, and it's, yeah, I remember just sitting, looking at, like, I used to watch the video over and over again as well, to, sort of hoping it would sink in and hoping it would sort of realise that, yeah, this is, this isn't a dream. This is actually, you are, you're an Olympic champion. When you were young, you said you didn't think you were going to be, probably if someone told you you're going to win six gold medals in the Olympics, you, you wouldn't have believed that. What, what changed on the way? What makes you different then from other people your age that allowed you to excel when others didn't? I think you have to have the physical potential. There's no way that, you know, you, you have to be within a certain physiological makeup. You know, I was never going to be a jockey, you know, put it that way, or a, a basketballer. But to me, it was, I guess it was about the environment I was in, the people that I had around me, my my own character. I, I loved solving problems. I loved I loved kind of working things out. I loved the, the feeling of improving and, and getting better and learning how to, to unlock a, a new level of performance or get better at something so but I guess into my later career it was about having I set the goal of becoming Olympic champion not because I thought it would be real or, or achievable just because I thought well if you've got the chance of dreaming you may as well aim as high as you possibly can and then I kind of reverse engineered that that journey from being Olympic champion to where I was at that time and broke it down into these tiny little steps just stepping stones towards that end goal so that every single session every single session I had there was a purpose behind it every single session I knew what I was trying to achieve from that. And if I hit that target, that was me, a genuine step towards that that dream of becoming Olympic champion. It felt like it was chasing the rainbow. I didn't feel like I would ever get there, but I thought this would be fun to see how far I could go. I might get to travel the world. I might get to go and you know represent my country at the Commonwealth Games. I might get to even go to the Olympics, who knows? I didn't believe it would ever end in a gold medal, but I thought, well, this is, I'm basically living the dream, doing what I love doing, and I'm going to see how far I can take it. Who were the, some of the good leaders that you had? Like maybe coaches, maybe fellow athletes. Who and what did what did you like about them? Good leaders. Well, I guess Dave Brilsford is is a he's a he's a marmite character, but he's he in terms of you know personality and how people got on with him. But he as a leader, he had great vision. He was able to to I think his one of his greatest skills is is picking out people's talents or abilities for certain roles, and he would he would choose people and put them in a position and think, why have you picked him as a coach? Or why have you put him in this position? And then within six months, you'd sort of go, ah, right, yeah, he's, he has he has amazing vision. But in terms of athletes, in terms of leaders, Jason Queeley wasn't, he wasn't a leader in the true sense of a captain. He wasn't someone who would sort of stand there, but he cared about people and he, he looked out for people. He's got that in his nature. And I think that, yeah, the way that he treated me and the way he nurtured me and helped me to become a, a challenger for him but not then back out and go, wait a minute, you know, you're you're getting a bit too close for comfort. Um, yeah, I have a lot of admiration for him. So regular listeners will start knowing this now, but I ask our guests what their captain's compass would be. So it would be four traits that you wanted to demonstrate or say in your example that you did demonstrate, you know, daily as an athlete. What would be those four traits that you'd like to demonstrate as a leader? Well, I think authenticity, being authentic and practising practicing what you preach, mm. being, you know, not, not saying one thing and doing another. It, it's about actually... Yeah, le- leading by example and, and saying, well, actually, you know, you're not asking or expecting something from other people that you wouldn't do yourself. So that was that was one. Consistency was a huge part of what I used to do. So being a leader, I, because I never really saw myself as a leader as such, I wasn't a formal role, I guess. And looking back now, you can see that it, to a certain extent, there was a leadership role within the team. But becoming, getting to that position, it came through consistency. So it wasn't just trying to turn on the magic on, you know, I'll be all right on the night kind of thing. It was realising that every single session counts. And and it's as much for my own, the psychology of knowing that you've done what you need to do to be the best you can be on the day. And therefore you've got no regrets and no, 
you know, you can relax thinking, well, you know, the work is done. For me, it was every single day I turned up and I had a clear plan. I knew what I was wanting to achieve from that session, but not just the session, every single element within the session I tried to perfect and do to the best of my ability. Um, so consistency, open-minded, like we were talking about earlier on, about, you know, never never thinking that you you know everything and that you have the, all the answers. It's always, it, to me, it's about yeah, good one. being curious as to what, what else can you do to improve, looking at your rivals, not getting fixated on them and what they're doing, but being interested in them and seeing people that are improving and, well, why are they improving or why are they doing that differently? And, and how, even if it's all you do is confirm that what you're doing is right for you at that time, I think it's good to have an open mind and be aware of what else there is out there to different ways of approaching it. The fourth one, I put accountability, ownership of your performance, being not not passing the buck and not blaming other people and not blaming other factors. I hate I hate watching sport when you see folk coming off the pitch and blaming the referee or blaming their well this happened or that happened or we could have changed this or got unlucky with the weather or you know I've got an injury at the moment. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear why you're not you know because all you're doing when you're when you're making excuses, all you do is you're basically saying if I hadn't if these things hadn't gone against me, I would have won. And that's just disrespectful to your opponents. You know, it's go out there and say, Well done. You know, you beat me today, but I'm going to come back stronger. Be accountable. And if you're accountable, and if you're on a daily basis, if you're accountable for your own actions, I think it helps other people too. They they tend to follow too. And it's it's not about, in a team situation, you've got to, if you cock up or if you do something wrong, you've got to hold your hand up and say, that was my fault and not blame someone else within the team because that's, you know, it's, it becomes a toxic environment in a team situation. So yeah, accountability and ownership of performance. I absolutely love those Honestly, I, I might have to change my compass, I think. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the one you said about consistency. And these are things that you did. I, I, I'm the same as you. Like, you, you look back in hindsight and you realise you did things, but you didn't, at the time, it was just very normal. You just you just did mm. it. But the consistency one I love as well, because, like, we'll get a question. I'll get a question or somebody will challenge a 20-year-old academy player. Oh, he, he's got to be taking something. He's 20 and he's already this big and this explosive and... He's only a young man. But I think, I'm like, remember what he's done, and like this would have happened for you over the course of 12, 15, 16 years, is he has trained religiously. Say this 20-year-old boy, he's trained religiously for four years, so he's just 16 to 20. And if I asked that person back, I said, have you done that for four years? Have you stuck to a plan for four years? Because if you did, you will blow yourself away with the competition that you will take over. He has just displayed a level of consistency that most people don't do, which is why someone like yourself gets to the very top of their sport, because they're willing to do the little things that other people aren't willing to do for a long time. And people want these quick fixes, overnight success stories. It doesn't happen. They want the one secret, the one thing that make a big difference you know it's instagram it's social media you know oh. click here to find out how to you know change this or change and you just, the, the, the boring answer is it's about consistent work and but i think at the heart of consistent work is is the love of what you do you've got to have a passion for it you've got to care about it you've got to enjoy it because you know you can do it for a year you could do it for six months you could do it for a couple of years you'll eventually just run out of steam and it, you become stale and you don't enjoy it. But if you if you love what you do, it's not a chore to do it every day and to do it to the best of your ability every day. And I, I, I used to stop and think, how did I get to this point where I'm riding a bike for a living? This is this is the dream. You know, as a kid, if, if you told me I could, I, could be a, I could be a professional cyclist, race my bike and do nothing other than ride my bike every day for 20 years, I would have thought, you know, well, that's, you've won the lottery. That's, that is the dream. 
in, in rugby, we all sit down at the start of the season, do like goal setting, season targets then. Do, do you have like a, an equivalent then in, say, in track cycling? So you would have done the 04, London won the bid for, for 12. Did you then look to, right, I want to do these worlds, I want to do this in Beijing, I want to do this in London. How do you go about setting those goals? Or do you not? Do you sort of live in the moment year by year or do you plan that far ahead? Yeah, it's definitely a three-year plan or a four-year plan for the Olympics. And bearing in mind, you're looking to improve. Say, Let's say you're already up to world standards. Say you're Olympic champion and you want to be Olympic champion again. You might be spending four years trying to improve what? five hundredths of a second, you know, over over the space of nine, ten seconds, you know. So you're, And even that could be quite optimistic if you're already right at the very sharp end of things. So that breaks down to, you know, basically a hundredth of a second for a year's training to improve over, over nine, nine and a half seconds. So... It's tiny, tiny margins, and and therefore it's all planned in real detail, and you reverse engineer it from where you where you are, or from the end goal as to where you are now. But it's also about realizing you can't just repeat the same thing year after year because you'll stand still, you'll get the same performance, and your rivals will be improving. You have to find ways to change things slightly, but not not throw the baby out with the bathwater. You want to keep the good stuff, but change the stuff that isn't working quite so well. So much of that is intuition. A lot of it is based on data and fact. And that's where you have to have your, your coaching crew, your, your troop around you, the people you trust. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. You, you have to always understand that you don't know everything. And at people who profess to be, you know, the, the fountain of knowledge in this particular area, they often, it's part of, you know, I don't know, it's part of marketing. It's part of, you know, trying to get yourself better jobs or better gigs or, or promoting yourself. You, you, you are an expert, but actually it's the ones who, who go and say, well, I don't know everything about this. And, I'm, you know, but let's let's try and solve the problem. And, you know, to have an open mind and to be able to to look around and even to look to other sports, you know, it's it's what a lot of, you know, a lot of top successful coaches will go and, and speak to other other coaches from other, other sports. I remember Alex Ferguson coming across to see what was happening in the velodrome once. You know, he came over and, and did a little tour with Dave Brailsford and had a look around. This is Alex Ferguson, who is, you know, at that point, he was already, he was towards the back end of his career. He, he was the greatest of the greatest. You know, he was, he was amazing at what he did. But he still, at that stage in his career, was curious as to like, well, you know, maybe I could learn something. Maybe, you know, maybe it's just one little thing I'll pick up on that I could apply to my boys across the road. Um, so it was, yeah, I think you've got to have an open mind no matter what you do. Did you interact with Alex Ferguson? Did you pick his brains? I wish I could have done it. I was too, I was too scared. It was like, I was just, I said, <laughs> said hello and shook his hand and it was just like, wow. You know, I mean, Alex Ferguson, as a Scot, to meet Alex Ferguson, you know, that's up there with meeting Billy Connolly and Sean Connery, um, you know, Lulu. You know, there's some, there's some Scottish icons who, who you could have, yeah. who you meet and you go, I cannot believe I'm actually getting to, to shake this person's hand. So yeah, Alex Ferguson, he's, yeah, proper legend, proper Scottish legend. What, what was the goal then for Beijing? You got three golds, which I think was the first time a Brit did that in over 100 years, was it? When you went into that Olympics, was it, right, three goals? Or are you sort of like one race at a time? How do you approach that? I never went in thinking this is going to be three gold medals. I just went in thinking my first target is to be Olympic champion. I want to be Olympic champion for four more years. So I want to win a gold medal. And you know the, the first event is the team sprint. So that's all I'm thinking about right now. You know, you, you would train and you prepare for the three events, but once you get there, it's all about the team sprint and you get that job done. And then, then you put that to bed and you forget about it. You don't, even though you won the gold medal and it was amazing, we brought the world record. It's like very quick celebration on the podium, get your medals, medal goes off in the bag. You don't look at it. It's right. What's the plan? You've got to get back 
you've got to get some food in you, you've got to get the massage, go and see the physio, get to bed. You know, we're up at 5.30 to get the track. And, you know, and you're, you're on this treadmill of, of, of a, a routine for the five days. The second day was the Kieran, which went incredibly well, won the gold in that as well. So two gold medals. And then it was just, right, we've got now three days of sprinting leading up to the final. And after qualifying, it became, a, you know, it was pretty obvious that Jason Kenny, this new, new young kid, who had been my teammate in the team sprint, he was going to be probably the main challenger in the sprint. We qualified first and second, and we were sharing a room, or we are sharing an apartment in the village. So you've got this guy, you know, for three days that you kind of realise it's heading to this showdown, and it's like, it's it's the weirdest thing. You're, a good, you're good mates, but he's the person that could be standing between you and a historic three gold medals in one games. But we got around it by, well, first of all, he's a dead laid back guy, Jason. He's really relaxed, and he's, he's we get on well, and... The kind of unwritten rule was you don't talk about cycling. So you talk about anything, anything at all, but not about the racing and about what's happening. And what so you kind of, you switch on when you get the track and when you step onto the velodrome, that's when it's the kind of switch goes and it doesn't matter who it is. It can be your best pal. You want to beat them. You want to destroy them. You know, like your attitude to, to cycling, you know, all the things you've spoken about, which have been really impressive. Have you found they've, they've been transferable in life after cycling? I know you've got you know, business ventures like Hoy Bikes, which I purchased one for my oh, daughter. I am a, yeah, oh, I did. I did. It's excellent. Thanks, it's excellent. Mate. So yeah, um, no, I know. Very, very kind um, of you. But oh, mate, obviously, I, I was like, if I'm going to get a bike, I'm going to get oh, one of Chris Hoy's bikes. <laughs> legend, legend. But um, yeah, so do, do you find you, you've learned skills from your cycling career that you can apply into life after cycling, like, for example, your Hoy Bikes venture? Yeah, I, I think anything I do now, it's approach it with the same planning or goal setting, first of all. W- what do you want to achieve? Right, that's your target. Okay, break it down. Stepping stones, what's your what's your strategy? How are you going to get there? And then not being afraid to work hard, not being afraid to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in and saying, well, this is going to be a big challenge. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of effort. Right, good. You know, I need a challenge. But equally, I think on a different level, things like... Like becoming a parent, you know, my, I've got mm. two kids now. My first, um, my son Callum, he was he was born prematurely. He was born eleven weeks early. He was two pounds two when he was born. He was in hospital for eight weeks. Really stressful time. Really, you know, any parent he goes through stressful moments with their kids, with their health. But um, it was quite a tough introduction to being a parent. And uh, you know, so that was when you, st- you think, right, I can't do much here. There's nothing much I, practically I can do because your, your child's in an incubator and, you know, you get to hold them twice a day and you get to change their nappy. And, but the rest of the time you're sitting there just looking at them and hoping and praying that they're, you know, they're going to be all right and they're going to improve and they're going to get out soon. But that's when you, you start using these psychological techniques, the, you know, the, the coping mechanisms, the, the ability to, to focus on what you have control over and not worry about the things you don't and to, to gain perspective as well. It gives you a whole different perspective on life. So like the stuff, a lot of the stuff that I did with Steve, you realise at the time that you're, you're focusing in on one tiny little niche thing, riding a bike in anti-clockwise circles on a wooden track. It's really pretty trivial, let's be honest. It's, you know, it's not life and death. But Steve helps you to gain perspective and then it helps you when the bigger things in life happen and you kind of go, right, this is an important thing and... What, what can I do? And, and you know, little tools to help you deal with, with the stresses of life that it's not just about, you know, riding bikes and winning races. It's about learning how to cope with life. You've got so much experience to draw upon now. And that's great advice that you said about perspective. I certainly think about perspective a lot, you know, when, I'm, when I was competing and now in life after rugby. If you could go back or you're speaking to a young Chris Hoy now, is there anything that you'd like to tell him now that you didn't know back then? Um, I think back yourself a bit more. You know, it's, it's. I was always 
of the mindset that I'm not as good as the other guys and that you're, you know, it's, they're a different level. And, and I think related to that, I would say, don't compare yourself to others. You know, it's one of the, my favorite quotes of all time is comparison is the thief of joy. And I think yeah, you, when so you com true. compare yourself to something else, it's, it doesn't matter, you know, you go and you pick up your phone, you go on Instagram, everybody's having a good time. Everybody's doing something more exciting. They've all, they've all achieved more. They're doing more. They've, you know, it, whatever it is, you'll, you'll come up short against if you compare to others. Whereas the, the best thing I would say to myself age 10 or 12 or 16 or 18 is the only person you've got to beat is yourself and be better than you were yesterday. That, that's, that is your challenge. And not in every single facet, every single way, just, just improve one thing. You know, get out of bed a bit earlier, make your bed, you know, be organized, you know, plan your day better, commit a bit harder in training, you know, just little things, just little personal goals. Just try and be better than you were yesterday. And if you, even if it's just a tiny, tiny percent better, then you're, you're progressing and you're, you're improving. And then if you keep doing that, then you'll be the best you can be. And it's, you know, yeah, don't compare yourself to others because you just, it, it's a, it's a pointless task. Fantastic advice. Well, Chris, I just want to really sincerely say thank you so much. You've been, I've been a massive admirer of yours. You're a huge fan of what you've achieved. So I just want to thank you for being such a good role model for, for everybody. And oh. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. And next time I see you at a wedding, I'll make sure I, <laughs> I say hello and we'll get a picture. So no, thanks, Chris. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure and it's been a pleasure to chat to you too. You know, massive legend yourself and your sport. And yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Cheers, Chris. Cheers. Really enjoyed that chat with Chris. What a great guy and a real inspiration. Some of the things that stood out to me is Chris reflected on when he was younger, he expected everything to be linear, but it takes a long time to become Olympic champion. So be patient on your journey. Also how it's really important as a leader to have great vision and putting the right people in the right places. And I loved it when he said, back yourself, be better than you were yesterday. Whether you listen to this on your dog walk or a commute, go and get the day. Please keep your messages coming either via captains at crowdnetwork.co.uk or by using the hashtag captainspod on social media. Make sure you're following us on LinkedIn too. Just search for Captains with Sam Warburton. There's a nice community growing there, so do get involved. And don't forget, if you subscribe to Crowd Sports Plus on Apple, you can get these episodes of Captains ad-free as well as bonus content every week. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Thanks so much for listening. Next week, my guest is Man City women's captain and former England captain, Steph Horton. See you then. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.